Then Jesus came. Right, that is how, as you just heard, our passage starts. And, and in themselves, right, those words are not necessarily impressive words. They're just describing a person who in history, as Matthew says, quote, came from the region of Galilee to the river Jordan to John the Baptist. And yet, church, as we know, him finally coming here on the scene is a huge, significant reality. Because who is this Jesus, this person who is finally coming on the scene? Who is he so far, even in just the book of Matthew? Well, as we finish Matthew chapter 3 this morning, we know from these three chapters so far, just from these three chapters, that this Jesus is the Savior, he's the King, he's the blessing of the nations, he's Emmanuel, God with us, he's the fulfillment of Israel, the bringer of the new covenant, the mighty one who's going to change his people by the Spirit. He's the one who was really born miraculously of the virgin birth to show that he's the God-man, and then he lived kind of in obscurity in Nazareth for around three decades. But now, finally, he comes. He arrives on the scene in this passage. And so, really, that's where we are in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is coming. We have heard who he is. We've told, been told of his birth and beginnings. But now, here's where he finally begins his ministry leading to the cross. And so that's where we are, but that then leads us to our outline for how we'll go through this passage together. And so there's very clearly two parts to what we just heard read in verses 13 through 17. And so for us, we'll have two sections together this morning, two sections. And they're both centered around that baptism of Jesus. And so two sections. And as for what they are, very simply, first, we will look more at that dialogue between Jesus and John the Baptist that happened before Jesus' baptism. And then second, more climactically, we will then look at what happened after Jesus' baptism, or really immediately as soon as Jesus was baptized, which is quite an amazing scene. And so in summary, two sections. First, the dialogue before Jesus' baptism. Second, what happened after Jesus' baptism. And in it all, just remember, this is how Jesus intentionally started off his ministry. And so before we might honestly jump to thinking this doesn't sound that important or that interesting, let's just realize that Jesus doing this is very purposeful. And there's probably a reason why when our Savior God was here and walked among us, he began his ministry like this. And so let's dig in as God's people and see why together and what it might mean for us. But all said, let's then begin with our first section together, church, in the first half of our passage here. And here again, we're in verses 13 through 15, and we're looking at the dialogue between John the Baptist and Jesus. And we'll start with just reading these verses. And so remember, last week, John the Baptist came on the scene. He's baptizing people for repentance, and he's rebuking the Pharisees and Sadducees who didn't think they needed repentance, which leads to what happened next. Verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So this is an interesting little account here. And just so you know, only Matthew records this dialogue for us. 
Because while every other disciple who wrote a gospel book records Jesus' baptism because it's so significant, yet only Matthew includes this short dialogue. And so what's going on here and why does it matter for you and me? Well, to answer that, let's break down what's going on here into asking just two easy questions. First, why does John the Baptist feel he shouldn't baptize Jesus? Right? And then second, and what does Jesus say to John in response? And so let's take those one at a time. First, the question is, why does John the Baptist feel he shouldn't baptize Jesus? And we have to ask this because notice in verse 13, it's very clear. Jesus comes to be baptized by John. But then in verse 14, Matthew is clear. John the Baptist would have prevented Jesus from being baptized, which is a strong statement. And then notice in that same verse how John talks to Jesus. He says, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? And so John doesn't think he should do this. But the question then is, but why? And the answer is, probably somewhat obviously, as we all might be thinking instinctively, it's because John is basically looking at Jesus and he's saying, hey, if if we're going to do this baptism thing, which remember back then was a baptism symbolizing repentance, he's saying, if we're going to do this, then you, Jesus, shouldn't be baptized by me, but I should be baptized by you. And now probing deeper, why though would John think like that? And I know at first that might seem like an obvious answer to us, obvious question, but actually that's a harder question to answer than we may at first think. Because think about it, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that John the Baptist didn't fully know that Jesus was the Messiah yet. That didn't even start to happen until after this baptism. And not only that, but we do know that even after that, we have proof that John was still unsure about Jesus' messiahship years after. And so John didn't have a crystal clear revelation of who Jesus is at this point. That's not what's going on. Instead, what is going on here? Well, if you think about it, what's going on here is clearly, number one, John the Baptist's just humility is on display here. And why? Well, number two, because he knows somewhat about Jesus' superior holiness. John's baptism, Jesus' holiness. And if that's confusing, just think about how this might have happened in history. Because again, we know that John the Baptist didn't have a full realization that Jesus is the Messiah yet. But we do know is that, for example, Jesus' mom, Mary, and John's mom, Elizabeth, they knew each other, and they were related And that being said, John certainly did experience in history to some degree for probably around three decades knowing this man Jesus in real life. And although we don't know about those years, they really happened. And yet during that time, Jesus was still the God man. He was living here perfectly. He was remarkably holy and different. And he had no clear need of repentance. And therefore, when when Jesus in history comes on the scene to be baptized by John, John doesn't understand everything, but he knows one thing. Jesus is in a different category than him. He knows that he, not Jesus, truly needs repentance. Or to say it most simply, John is showing a proper and good humility here. And so that's the first part of this dialogue. And I know that might have been a little more obvious to us, but it's good for us to go slowly and and see that first before we get to Jesus' baptism because I do think this is here intentionally. And it even applies, I think, to you and I because remember, only Matthew records this dialogue in all the gospel books. And so why would he include it? Well, because think about it. Although for us it has been a whole week 
since last Sunday's passage, yet in this book of Matthew, what came right before this? Well, we ended last week with John's rebuke of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember, and concerning them, what we saw is that they didn't think they needed repentance because they presumed that they were fine with God, right, on their own, because of the race, because of the religiosity, because of their goodness. In other words, they were full of pride, and clearly Matthew's point he was making last week was that pride will keep us from genuinely embracing Jesus. And so that's right before this, and therefore, what's the contrast to that? Well, John the Baptist's example here. John, who was also in ministry, he was really popular. He was doing great things for God, we might say. And yet, he was humble. He he realized he needed repentance. He recognized that he wasn't even in the same category as Jesus. Or as he himself says elsewhere in the Bible, as you might know, John is the person who came to understand, quote, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And the point is that that's basically John's heart that we see here. And that's how our hearts should feel more and more humbling ourselves and exalting Jesus. And so that's what John says here. But that then leads to the second part of this section where we'll ask, and how does Jesus, though, respond to John? And as a reminder of this, just look at verse 15 again. So John is humble. He knows he should be baptized by Jesus. And yet, Jesus says this, verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. And I'll just be honest. This is a very, very debated verse. There is a ton of options concerning what Jesus actually means here. But studying it this week, here's basically what I think. So, so what makes this hard is that, remember, John's baptism was a baptism symbolizing repentance. And so, in a way, John is not only rightly humble here, but he's also right in saying, Jesus, this baptism isn't for you. And I think that Jesus actually agrees with that in a sense. And that's why, if you notice, Jesus' first statement to John is actually, quote, let it be so now. Because that word now could just be talking about time, like let's do it right now. Or more likely, like in English, it can be an acknowledgement saying something like, you're right, John, that I'm not being baptized for repentance, but now let's still baptize me. And so I think first, Jesus agrees that he's not doing this baptism for repentance. That's true, but why then be baptized? Well, apparently, quote, for, because, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that's especially where people love to just debate what Jesus means. And there are a lot of options, but to sum it up, In short, just think of it this way. Think of it this way. So as Jesus says that to John, he knows exactly what he's doing. And I mean, he doesn't just know exactly what he's doing in the baptism, but he knows exactly what he's about to do in this ministry of his that's beginning here. And what is he doing? Well, as we've talked about in Matthew, this Jesus has come as the Savior, as the King, as the blessing of the nations, as God himself to fulfill so much of the Old Testament, to be the obedient Son of God, to to die and rise for his people. And as we're going to see later in our passage, he's come even to reveal the triune God himself. And so he's come to do all of that. And therefore, the point is, how could we, how does he describe all of that? Well, I think by saying he's come to fulfill all righteousness. To be the perfect, righteous, savior, son of God and the king. 
And so that's what Jesus is here to do. Which means, simply put, that I think the point then that Jesus is making to John here is he's come to do all of that and part of that apparently involves this baptism by John. And in basic, that's all that Jesus says. Being baptized is part of this ministry that he's come to accomplish. That's, that's really all he says here. And think about it. If that's all that he's saying here, then honestly, I think asking further questions about Jesus' baptism is usually more of just speculation. And now that doesn't mean that there's not good things we could perhaps think about. Like how we already talked about this morning because we had a baptism at the end of Matthew. Jesus is the one who's going to tell his disciples themselves to be baptized. And so it's probably true that Jesus is baptized to give meaning to our baptism. And it's probably true that Jesus is baptized here to symbolize that he's initiating his ministry. And there's other things like that that we could think about. But in the end... All we know is that Jesus said clearly to John that this baptism needed to happen. (laughs) He said it was fitting for him and John to do this because notice he says it is fitting for us and therefore what we see at the end of verse 15 is that John conceded. In humility, John John heard Jesus. He didn't argue with Jesus and so Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And so that's Jesus and John's dialogue before Jesus was baptized. I know it might have been a lot, but not for us, for some takeaways from all of that. First, I do think a takeaway is that, yes, we should be humble like John. All right, that's true. But also, I do think the overarching takeaway from this dialogue here is that we should realize that we, yes, are not righteous on our own, like John realized. But also, along with that, we should listen to Jesus and recognize that Jesus actually is perfectly righteous. Please think about it. Whatever fulfill all righteousness technically means, what we do know is that Jesus himself being perfectly righteous is definitely true. And that's why elsewhere in the Bible, some of Jesus' disciples, such as Peter and John, they start to call Jesus sometimes, quote, the righteous one. Because part of the good news of Christianity is that on our own, none of us is righteous. But Jesus is. And I know we've probably heard that many times, but thinking about that more and more does help us love and appreciate Jesus more. And moving on, thinking about how righteous and special Jesus truly is does prepare us for what's about to happen in verses 16 and 17. And so that's our first section. And that's the dialogue between Jesus and John before his baptism. But again, now that leads us to much more climactically to what happened after. Or really, as you can see in verse 16, to what happened immediately as Jesus was baptized. And this is one of the biggest revelations about who the living God actually is in the whole Bible. And so for this, we'll be in verses 16 and 17. And to begin, we'll just read these verses and then we'll talk about them. And, and I know many of us are probably familiar with this story. But as you hear this in a second, I just encourage you, try to imagine this really happening in history. Because it did. And so John consents to baptize Jesus. That's how verse 15 ends. And then this happens. Look at your Bibles, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately... He went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, 
a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, so let's break down what took place here. And again, just try to imagine the scene. Jesus is baptized. In ver- and then in verse 16, immediately he comes up from the water and behold, which is a very emphatic word, the heavens were open to him. And, and now, whether that means that only Jesus could see the heavens opening, whatever that means, or whether that means other people could see it too, we don't know. But either way, this heavens being opened is a biblical phrase that means that God is showing who he is. And it might even mean that God is visibly showing the heavenly realm. And so, so Jesus comes out of the water and immediately the heavens are opened. And then what happens? Well, then the, the spirit of God descends like a dove and comes to rest on Jesus. And to be honest, even what that looked like, we're not exactly sure. And I say that because although every single gospel account records the spirit dissension happening because it really did occur, yet also every single gospel account uses this phrase, quote, like a dove. And that's significant because therefore we know that the spirit of God himself revealed himself somewhat visibly here. But that phrase, like a dove, doesn't necessarily mean he revealed himself as an actual dove. Instead, maybe he did come in a form of a dove or maybe it was more like the form of the cloud of glory from the Old Testament and the tabernacle or maybe something else. We don't know. But either way, Jesus is baptized. The heavens are open. The Spirit of God himself descends gently like a dove and rests on Jesus, which all then climactically in verse 17, where we see there the emphasis comes again, that word behold, look, take notice, And at what? Why? Well, because incredibly, a voice from heaven. A voice from heaven. So now God himself from heaven is audibly speaking. That voice comes and says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so that happens in history, in space-time history. And I mean, can you imagine seeing that? And quickly, I just want to say, if if you struggle with thinking that that could really happen, just know that struggle is less about the scene itself and it's more just about believing in the living God's existence. (laughs) Because if God is real, which he is, then of course he can reveal himself like this in this world that he created. But anyway, so that's what happened. Which leads us to ask, but why is all this going on, right? Well, why did this happen? And there's really clearly two answers to that. Two answers. The first concerns what this just shows us about God in general, specifically about the Trinity, which is amazing. And then second though, and this is often less talked about, this scene shows us something about who Jesus actually is in his ministry. And so we'll take those one at a time. The Trinity and then Jesus in his ministry. So first, let's just talk now about the Trinity. And, And we do so because as you can tell, The Trinity is obviously revealed here. And just so you know, it's passages like this that are the reason why Christians even believe in the Trinity. Because yes, there are some unorthodox so-called Christian groups that don't hold to the Trinity. But overall, the reason why God's people have believed in and loved the Trinity ever since Jesus came is basically because Jesus and the Bible so clearly teach it in many places. And again, we see that here because notice, remember, this is Jesus being baptized here, right? 
Jesus, who we already know is said to be already in this book, God with us, Emmanuel. So, so he's God, and not only is he generically God, but Jesus has sent to be the Lord God from Isaiah 40, Yahweh from the Old Testament. And so if you're tracking, Jesus here in this scene already is God. That's clear. And as a quick side note, by the way, that does mean that Jesus here is not just some man whom God empowered. Well, we need to know that. And in fact, that was a heresy dealt early on in the church biblically. And, but still, sometimes people can fall into thinking that today. And so again, to be clear, Jesus was not just a man who then was empowered by God. Instead, he was and he is a man and God himself. And that's clear so far just even in Matthew. And it will become even clearer as we go. And so that's true. And, and I just want us to rehash that truth because think about it. That being true, we, and, and the Bible even, could have just stopped there and said, and that's it concerning God. Right? This Jesus is God with us, and he's here, and that's it. And yet, while that's true, that Jesus is God, the Bible doesn't allow us to stop there. <laughs> because as we know, for example, Jesus himself in his ministry often talks about God, although he is God. And because Jesus does things like pray to the Father, and also, we can't stop there because we get things like what we see here. And what do we see here? Well, we have Jesus being God with us. And we have the Spirit of God who is distinct from Jesus. And elsewhere, the Spirit of God himself is said to be God in a person. And then finally, when that's happening, we also have a voice from heaven distinct from Jesus, distinct from that Spirit, calling Jesus his Son which means that this voice from heaven is this son's father. And so that's here, and really that's the Trinity. And, and for us, it's true. We can try to break that down more, but really concerning the Trinity, I think we're mainly supposed to think, okay, so there's one God, and, and that's clear in the New Testament and the Old Testament. As you probably know, that's what made the Jews in history unique, right? Monotheism. And so, and so we're supposed to think, okay, so there's only one God, and as the Old Testament says, he will not share his glory with another. And yet, also, it's this one God himself, this monotheistic Yahweh, the Lord God himself, who has revealed that being one God, he is also three persons. Father, Son, Spirit. And now again, how that all works... <laughs> I mean, theologians have tried to dive deep into Scripture and do the best they can. And if we had time, maybe we could get into some of the things that they've said that I think might be helpful. But again, in short, I think how it's mainly supposed to work is it's mainly supposed to make us not analyze, but stand in wonder. And we're not supposed to argue about the Trinity as much as we're supposed to stand in awe of the Trinity. And above all, the reality that God is triune should make us stand in worship. Because remember, we, we are talking about God here. <laughs> and, and God isn't just one of us, but bigger. We each tend to think like that. We, we tend to think that God is basically just like one of us, but a little bigger and up there. But that's just, that's just not true. <laughs> Instead, he's really God. He's totally different, perfect, infinite, holy. And, and so being God, if we really think about it, then of course there would be things about God that are hard for us as creatures to fully grasp. <laughs> things that, let's be clear, aren't illogical. This is important. The Trinity is not illogical. 
It's not like God is saying he is God and also not God at the same time. Right? That would be illogical. That would be wrong. And so there's things that aren't illogical, but they are above our logic. And one of those things clearly is the Trinity itself. One God, three persons, not three parts, not three different modes, because they're all here at the same time in this scene. Not three parts, not three modes. Instead, the Trinity is the reality of our one God consisting eternally, equally, and right now as three persons. And so that's what Jesus' baptism here shows us about our triune God. It should lead us to worship. And of course, we could spend more time on that. But I want us also to see what this scene shows us specifically about who Jesus is and his ministry. Jesus and his ministry. And as I said, I do think that this is left less talked about usually when we talk about Jesus' baptism. Because the truth is, since the Trinity is so obvious here, what often happens is we only talk about the Trinity. But, in fact, also what's going on here has a lot of significance to who Jesus specifically is and what he's about to do in his ministry. Which, which therefore, as we're about to see, revealing these things at the start of his ministry may actually be why Jesus wanted to be baptized in the first place. But anyway, so three, two things about Jesus we're about to see, and then I'll just let you know, I know this is a lot, so two things about Jesus, and then towards the end, we will come back and have some applications and encouragements about this. But two things about Jesus, and as you hear these, just let these lead you to worship our Savior more. First, now notice what the Father actually says in verse 17. So look down to your Bibles, verse 17, because it's interesting. This is the Father talking from heaven, and in a way here, I want you to know the Father is actually referencing Scripture. And this, one of the scriptures he's clearly referencing shows that this scene that just transcribed actually is fulfilling an Old Testament passage from Isaiah about the suffering servant. About the suffering servant. And the suffering servant, as you might know, in Isaiah is this figure who was to come and suffer and die for the sins of God's people. And concerning who he was, now hear this verse from Isaiah 42. In the Old Testament, God says this, Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. End quote. And so you can hear the similarities. Right? There's that word behold, which Matthew decides to use. And then there's the fact that God delights, is well pleased with this servant. And then finally, there's the fact that the Spirit has come upon him. And so all that said, everyone basically agrees that what's going on here in this scene is it is fulfilling Isaiah 42.1. And that matters, not just because it's interesting, but think about it. That means that Jesus is here on the scene fulfilling all righteousness. He has no need of repentance. And he's even God with us. And the Trinity is revealed here. All that is here. And yet, what also is going on? Well, amazingly, one thing that God the Father wants to communicate about this beloved Son of His is that this beloved Son also is the suffering servant who's going to suffer, who's going to the cross. And why? Well, for us, and for the sins of God's people. And really the point, again, is that God the Father, therefore, and all of his delight that he has in his Son that he's declaring here, he knows that this is also the suffering servant. 
And therefore, God the Father is not only just delighting in Jesus here, but he's declaring the gospel of Jesus' suffering to come as well. It's amazing. And so that's the first thing here about Jesus, which leads to the second thing. And for this, now zoom in again on what the Father says. And notice he emphatically starts by calling Jesus, quote, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. And now he says that first because it's true in the Trinity, of course, as we just talked about. But also, almost any Israelite hearing that this is my son language would have thought about how in the Old Testament that terminology was specifically used of the king. And particularly of the coming Messiah and especially because of Psalm 2, Psalm chapter 2. And so most people think God the Father is speaking here and he's not only referencing Isaiah 42.1, but also Psalm 2. And we can say that because famously, if you know Psalm 2 at all, it all starts in Psalm 2 with these verses asking this, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Meaning the context of Psalm 2 is that the nations, the world, they're raging against God and his ways and sin. And to be clear, that is still going on today. And to be clear, that is all of us by nature. We in this world we are in are full of rebellion, raging against God on our own. But what's then God's famous response to that in Psalm 2? Well, first, if you read it, which I encourage you to read it on your own time, his first response is actually to laugh. (laughs) Psalm 2, 4 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs which might sound strange to us, but it makes sense because the point is, who are we? Who are the nations to plot against God? And so first in Psalm 2, God's response to the raging nations is laughing, but that's not it. Because then after that, more climactically, God gives his ultimate response to the nations raging. And what is it? We'll hear this from Psalm 2, 7 and 8. Quote, I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten of you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, end quote. And in brief, that's then what most people think God the Father is referencing here as well. Because summing it all up then, Jesus is here finally on the scene. He's fulfilling all righteousness. The Trinity is revealed. He's the suffering servant. He is the Savior. But also this language of this is my son is telling us and declaring to the world from God himself in heaven that this Jesus also is the king. This is the king who is the triune's God's response to the nations that are raging. Which means for the nations and for all of us who live in the nations, it means that again in Matthew we see declared that, for, that, that from the Father himself this time, we see declared that this Jesus really is the king who has come. This is God's answer to what's going on in the world and the raging in our sin. And so the question then isn't, well, will we make him king of our lives and our world? No, he already is the king. He's God's king. Instead, implied here is the personal question for all of us to ask now, it's will I bow to him as king? Right, happily embracing his love and the salvation and the peace and the hope he brings? Or will I not and decide to continue to rage against him? 
And again, the point is that I, I think is really implied in what God the Father says here as he's referencing Psalm 2. Because to begin his ministry, Jesus intentionally had this baptism happen. The Spirit comes. God the Father speaks. And when he does so, he shows that this Jesus is the Savior and the suffering servant. But again, the Father also declares out loud from heaven to them back then. And he's declaring to all of us this morning in his word. And this is my son, the king, who I'm going to give the whole world to. And that's how Jesus' ministry begins. <laughs> and, and, and so that's our passage, church. And again, I know that was a lot of information because there is even more so a lot of dense, jam-packed theology in this passage. But in basic, that is Jesus and John's dialogue. That's what happens at Jesus' baptism, which all means for us now to really bring this home. As I said earlier, I just want to now close with a couple applications and even encouragements from all of this. So two encouragements and then we will be done. Number one, be encouraged by the fact that, notice, it is not just Jesus here, but it is the whole triune God who is clearly involved in our salvation here. Or to say it another way, one thing we actually see quite clearly from this text is that it's not just Jesus, but it is God the Father and it is God the Spirit too who are eager to save us, eager to save you in the gospel. And on this, one, one commentator and pastor I read this week put it this way. He's, he was referencing Genesis 1, where if you remember in the first page of the Bible, we're told we're made in God's image. And there God says, let us make man in our image. So referencing that, the commentator then said on this passage, listen to this, quote, It was the whole Trinity, which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. And it was the whole Trinity, which at the beginning of the gospel seem to say, let us save man. I think that's true and beautiful. And that should be encouraging to us. Because, because God is real and he is magnificent and holy and infinite and three in one. And yet the point here is also though, let, let's marvel at the fact that all three persons of the Trinity are happily, willingly involved in this salvation and gospel. They are. Because Jesus is willingly coming on the scene here to be the suffering servant for you and for me. And the Spirit is the one who decides to descend upon Jesus and remain upon Jesus for you and for me. And as we know from places like John 3.16, we know that God the Father is the one who has famously sent his one and only Son to be that suffering servant for you and for me. And so we should be encouraged by that because this is our almighty triune God doing this for us. And so that's the first encouragement that then leads us to quickly close with one more. And this is an encouragement which paradoxically in a way can be found in that last line where God the Father says, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we can find encouragement in that phrase because let's, let's remember what the good news of Jesus shows, that, shows us is that yes, on our own, that is not us and God. It can't be. God isn't well pleased with us, with all of our sin that we know about. He created us, he does love us, but we do not deserve that sort of well-pleased statement from a holy God. And yet, the gospel truly is, as Jesus taught us, that what happens when we come to him is that the love and pleasure that God the Father has forever had in Jesus, which he's declaring here, 
Well, the gospel is that all of a sudden, that now becomes how he feels about us as well. It's amazing. And why? Well, because we are found in the Son with whom the Father is well pleased. And so really, the final encouragement here is you can take heart that if you trust in Jesus Christ, God says that in verse 17 about you now. You are his child. And with you, he is well pleased. And now, that may sound way too good to be true, Or that might be really hard for you to believe because you know your struggles and your doubts. But again, that's why we need to be constantly reminded that the gospel isn't about how good we are at all. Instead, the good news really is about this Jesus, this son, this savior, this suffering servant and king who has come. And guess what? With him, God the Father has always been and forever will be well pleased. And therefore, for us, if we're in him, then God in his word is crystal clear. We also, by grace alone, are fully in his love too. We are fully his children, and with us, he is well pleased. (laughs) And not because of us, but because of this Jesus who came and accomplished the good news. (laughs) Amen?